1: Coming up on Chopper's Politics. A lot to do and a short time to do it in. So it's going to be an exciting ride for the next 18 months, I think.
2: Hello and welcome to Chopper's Politics podcast. Now we're here a bit later than usual with up-to-date analysis of local elections in England. We saw thousands of council seats up for grabs. It's the first electoral test for the new Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak. And it's made for grim news for the Tory party while Labour and the Liberal Democrats and the Greens, too, are cock-a-hoop. With me to discuss the fallout from these elections and what they mean for the next general election are Martin Baxter, the founder of Electoral Calculus, and Tony Diver, political editor of the Sunday Telegraph. And because the results are still coming in, I should say that we are recording this just before tea time on Friday, so some figures will be different in your Saturday's Daily Telegraph. Martin Baxter from Electoral Calculus. Welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. Great to have you on. Hi, Chris. And you, Tony Diver, here in Telegraph Towers. Good to have you on, Tony.
1: Hello. Martin Baxter first. Who won? Well, our short answer is Labour won. So we are here recording this on uh, Friday afternoon. We've got about a third of the results in, but it looks like Labour are on course to win uh, hundreds of seats and the Conservatives are going to lose hundreds of seats on our figures. Labour would imply a national vote share lead for Labour over the Conservatives of about 15%, which would be enough for a very substantial majority, yes.
2: So surely Tony Diver, Keir Starmer, should be relaxed today. He's on course to a Tony Blair-style landslide. Well, I think the most telling thing for me was this morning listening
3: to all of these kind of distraught Tories do the morning broadcast round, saying, "Oh, well, oh, fine, it was a good night for Labour, but it wasn't as good as the great local elections of 1995, in which Tony Blair won 1,800 seats." It's quite quite striking that that is the yardstick that Keir Starmer is now being measured by—the most successful local elections for, I, mean, I think, his most successful elections in Labour Party history. The thing that preceded the great landslide—it hmm. um, does feel to me very much like the Tories had already accepted they were going to lose, and now yeah. sort of desperately trying to point out it's not—it's not as bad as it possibly could have been.
2: We're going to resist doing forecasting Martin Baxter on what the result will be because by the time this comes out the result will be out and I don't don't want to embarrass you but it looks then like Starmer is making the advances he needs to make, right? Because if you look at where he's won he has won big in places that might be expected to go for the Conservatives?
1: Yeah, so overall, to win a general election, Labour need a lead of about 5% over the Conservatives. In the polls at the moment, they've got about 15%, and that's very consistent with what we're seeing in the local elections here. It's uh, I mean, different people got different measures, but the numbers are between 11 and 15%. So all of that is enough. On the other hand, we do see a little bit of what we saw last year, which is the Conservatives are generally unpopular and are losing seats. But although Labour are doing well, they're not doing, you know, super duper well in the sense that some, some of the voters leaving the Conservatives are going to other parties, going to the Liberal Democrats and going to the Greens. So it is, you know, it's not 100% blue skies for Labour, but it's, a pretty, it's, it's still going to be a pretty good day for them. And, Tony Diver, how do you explain
2: that? Because for me, Keir Starmer is no Tony Blair. And I knew Tony Blair, to misquote a, a famous US presidential debate from the 1960s. But I didn't really know Tony. I, I, I was aware of Tony Blair when I was covering politics 20 years ago. He is no Blair, is he? Yeah, he's benefiting from this extraordinary, these big numbers that Martin Baxter's is talking about.
3: Yeah, I mean, there are few people that you meet. And I've been out on the doors a couple of times during this campaign, out reporting on all what the candidates are saying. People aren't excited about the idea of Keir Starmer. He's not a man who seems to inspire massive confidence or enthusiasm from voters. But I think what you said there is completely right. You've got these two areas, you've got the north and the south, to put it very crudely, where Labour is both picking up gains. It suggests that that kind of broad electoral coalition created by Boris Johnson between the Red Wall, historic Labour seats, and the Tory heartlands in the south is kind of crumbling, actually. And and, and yeah. once you start to see those chinks come through and you, and you see you know, key areas in there start to fold... You know, it does appear that the Starmer project is basically working.
2: Are you seeing a Brexit squeeze, Martin? As Tony says, Tories in the north losing ground to Labour, and in the south and southwest, the Lib Dems
1: benefiting from disaffected Remainers. Yes, that seems to be sort of generally the trend, but. Um... Labour picking up slightly unexpected councils like East Staffordshire and Stoke-on-Trent, which are you know, a bit more northerly. Though they also, but, but, you know, but
2: that, that is that is red wall seats, so isn't it? Those are red wall yeah, seats that went. But
1: equally, on our figures, we weren't thinking those were slam dunk Labour. They also took um, Medway and Plymouth, which are in the south, which was more expected. But it's still you know uh, the making progress there from the Labour point of view. The other thing I'd, I'd just like to bring in, Chris, is to look at the. Changes over the last kind of uh, six to 10 months because it has been a roller coaster ride. They were 15% ahead, which is, say it again, a large, significant lead. Back in October, the Nadir of the List Trust premiership, Labour were over 25% ahead, Hmm. which would have been, uh, I think there were sort of incredible projections for Labour majorities there. But Rishi Sunak has recovered 10% of that lead already and the conservative strategy i guess must be for the next 18 months to hope they can recover more if they can recover another 10 percent then they take labor back down to a much more marginal situation where they could be relying on lib dem or snp support and if they can go even yep. further than that then because the it might even save the day in the end i think what was described as the narrow path to victory it is very narrow but they are moving along it they have been moving along it for the last few months
2: and turning dive, Martin Buxton mentioned the Liberal Democrats. I was struck by a very pregnant pause that Ed Davey gave when interviewed on LBC this morning. He was asked about sharing power with Labour, and he didn't really give a clear answer on that, because that surely is where the numbers are going. As Martin says, if that trend continues, if the polls narrow, the Lib Dems are back in the frame, aren't they, for power? Yeah, of course. And
3: it's completely in the Lib Dems' interest to keep that question open as we head towards the next general election. And Windsor and Maidenhead, that was turned to the Lib Dems this morning. I mean, that is a sort of great historical significance. Of course, it's the the uh, council area that covers Wintercastle Castle and Eton College—two things that will be, you know, of emotional significance to conservatives—and this weekend, and, and, the, and this weekend, <laughs> of course, weekend? yes, you know, the, the people who empty the king's bins um, have have. There's been a change in management over there, so that that I think is uh, is an important thing to remember. But yeah, I mean, we know that in Somerset, in in, in the West Country, and in Hertfordshire, Buckinghamshire. Sussex, all of these places, the Lib Dems have been starting to make gains in polling over, over the last yeah. year, or, year or two. Now we're starting to see that come to fruition. And if you're Dominic Raab sitting in Esher and Walton um, going into the next
2: general election, you're, you're going to be feeling pretty hot under the yes, collar, I would have thought. He's got more time to spend in Esher and Walton now, hasn't he? After his, uh, being, losing his job as Justice Secretary. Martin Baxter, to what extent are local issues is important here? I know Plymouth was mentioned by Tony Diver, but Plymouth, of course, was lost probably because of a tree massacre by the councils at midnight.
1: Yeah. Yes, you get all sorts of local effects and um, one of the fun bits in my job is I get to speak to a lot of local party activists on all sides in the run up for local elections and I'm always amazed by not only their knowledge of what's going on locally but all the very particular local issues that do um, make the local elections very different from Westminster elections. There's a lot more independence. There's a different set of issues and there can be, you know, some very local, hyper-local issues that are very important and driving uh, opinions. Yes. So that makes it a little bit of a murky crystal ball. Well, I was going but- to
2: say, does that make it more hard to predict or use these figures to predict an election next year?
1: It certainly makes it hard to predict local elections, and turnout is always a, a tricky factor with the local elections. We've not talked about that, but I get the feeling that one of the dogs that didn't bark here was the voter ID. There was talk in advance that this would you know, potentially cause chaos and news coming out of the polling stations. And I know there's been some reports of people not being able to vote. But my own polling station yesterday, they said they hadn't turned anybody away. I've heard that they're taking some
2: out-of-date ID in some places.
1: Yes, my teller yesterday said the worst that happened was somebody arrived with two forms of ID and only one of them was valid. And that was as, <laughs> okay. as they got to a refusal. So that that seems to have passed off perhaps better than it might have done, though I'm sure there's still been some instances. The other question, and it may take us a bit of time to work this out, is whether Conservative voters have stayed at home. Um, more than normal. That was the big question. That we're seeing that in the polling for Westminster as well. That lots of people who voted Conservative last time they 've not switched. Some of them have switched directly to Labour. Many have not, and are, are saying don't know or won't vote. And that must be the hope of the Tory party, I'd have thought. Is get those people back and turning out um, yeah. and back in the Conservative column. But it, it's not guaranteed because, for instance, um, at the last general election, it's sort of less well-known, but one of the reasons why Labour lost so badly was that many Labour voters stayed at home because they did not want to vote for mm. Jeremy Corbyn. And so the Conservatives could, you know, may have potentially on their side a problem a bit like that that they have to tackle. And it's hard to get
2: voters out if you're annoyed about the removal of Boris Johnson by MPs, if you're wondering where Liz Truss is. And if your local councillors have lost their seats, you lose all this kind of support infrastructure, don't you? So that's why it's so important having councillors if you're a party. Just to you, Tony Diver, we haven't talked about Scotland. Now, Scotland is a big boom, possibly, for Labour, isn't it? If they do win, say, 20 seats of the next general election, that could be, all, that could be what counts, up from one at the moment.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And of course, Scotland's not voting in these local elections. We had our Scottish elections uh, last year. But what we have seen in the last few months is basically a complete implosion of the SNP. We've seen Nicola Sturgeon out of office, Hamza Youssef in, who it doesn't appear to be, according to the polls, particularly popular. And you've got this kind of threat of a police investigation hanging over the SNP's finances. Um, Or an actual one. Yeah, sorry. I mean, Perhaps rather the threat, the consequences of a police investigation (laughs) into the SNP's finances. Uh, But you have got both the Tories and Labour basically sitting there licking their lips at the prospect of this happening. And, and in a lot of those areas were historically Labour seats. This is the thing yes. we have to remember is that, you know, the Labour majority for the times they had it throughout the 20th century was, was to a large extent bolstered by mm. seats
2: in Scotland. And that just hasn't been true over the, over the last couple of decades. Um, Martin Baxter, on the minor parties, the Greens are doing quite well, aren't they?
1: Uh, yes, yeah. so it's always um, slightly hard to predict the local elections, but they are doing better than predicted. It's quite hard to work out where the kind of the green shoots will come up, so <laughs> to speak. Though, of course, as ever, that's very hard for them to translate into Westminster seats at the next general election. Yep. The Lib Dems have a similar problem there as well. But building local strength is definitely kind of part of the, the climb up the mountain if you want to get to a Westminster seat. That's how the Greens got Brighton, and it's how the, um, the yep. Liberal Democrats often win their seats. So it will remain to be seen, obviously, how important the minor parties are. The chances are still that Labour will not need them, but if the race tightens over the next 18 months, then it could just come into play.
2: And and Tony Diver, we're not seeing any evidence, are we, that Reform UK is damaging the Tory party. They are calling a very disappointing set of local results, as we record mid afternoon on Friday, they've made zero gains despite fielding 500 candidates. That's right. There's a lot of talk from Reform UK about
3: this idea that the Tories have betrayed Brexit and that they ought to, you know, they'll scoop up a lot of votes from it. I mean, actually look at the result in Hartlepool this morning, which Richard Tice always said, Reform UK leaders always said that that was a sort of main place that he expected to pick up some votes. They actually got no candidates elected in that seat and Labour have got 18 of the 19 seats on that council that you need in order to control it. And, you know, we of course remember that great Hartlepool by-election in which Boris Johnson stormed to victory and it was seen as a great sign of his success as a Tory leader. Actually, now that area is largely Labour yeah. controlled and,
2: you know, any sort of reform insurgency has completely failed to materialise. Uh, looking forward, Martin it doesn't today's results suggest that the idea of a short term general election, maybe May or June next year, is now out of the question because it seems that time is what the Tories need to try and rein in this Labour leader in the polls? Well, never
1: say never, but I think that's right, Chris, at the moment. that I mean, unless the polls turn around quite quickly, I think the Conservatives will be following a Mr. McCorber strategy of uh, holding on and hoping that something turns up, poll Mm. ratings turn up. You know, the best bet at the moment is that they are going to hit the buffers around and have an election around about autumn next year yes november october time yes i mean they, they could conceivably go to december or january january i think depending on the electoral arithmetic but you know it's not a not a great time to be campaigning i don't think people liked it very much last time so i think yeah it's uh, penciling in for september 24 seems about right at the moment but if opinion if opinion changes they could well go for a snap election if the opinion polls moved a lot but they would have to move a lot
2: And all that hangs Tony Diver on delivery, doesn't it? On Sunak showing that that he can do his five tests. He set himself on inflation. NHS waiting lists, small small boats and the rest. I mean he's got to get these, he's got to deliver hasn't he?
3: That's right and that's why I think we haven't had the resurgency of the sort of Boris Johnson supporters agitating to get rid of Rishi Sunak because actually he has turned around a lot of those things quite yeah. well in the last few months uh, and the stop the boats in particular is very popular with Conservative voters, with Conservative MPs. Problem is it's a pretty high bar to meet there. Stopping the boats altogether means zero boats, no boats crossing the channel. I mean that is a that is an incredibly difficult thing to do and he may well be helped by the inflation statistics as they, as they come through the, the back end of this year. But there is already talk of some kind of Sunak reset of his premiership following these results. People are talking about a new number ten drive to bring down NHS waiting lists as being the thing that they're going to sort of show to voters that they've they've still got something to offer. But yeah, I mean, basically, he set himself five tests, and if he meets them, then he
2: might do mm. all right. But but if he can't, and that seems yeah. like the
3: more likely option, then he'll
2: struggle. Uh, Antony Diver, you mentioned uh, Boris Johnson. I mean, we had all forecast, hadn't we, a crisis for Sunak after bad results, but really. No one is saying Boris should come back. I mean, nobody is saying that. I've talked to people who normally would say that and they are not saying bring back Boris. No, they're not. And
3: I think people expected Rishi to be in a much worse position at this point than than he actually is. And if you're a Tory MP, there's got to be a very high bar for holding another leadership election, hasn't there? Because we've already had two last year and they're very unpopular with voters voters don't like to see the internal Conservative Party turmoil affecting what's going on in number 10 and there has to be a very good reason to get rid of these people and And I just don't think at the moment there is a, a groundswell of people who think that that's the right thing to do
2: and Martin Baxter will have more tests won't we for the main party leaders but the party we've most to think about is the Tories this weekend
1: yes we are getting ready to enter into the run-up to the next general election as they say and then the Conservatives will, uh, as you mentioned already, it'll all be about delivery. And the things they're trying to deliver on are quite tricky issues and they're quite long-term issues. So, you know, the key question of the concerns will be, you know, how is the economy looking in a year and a half? Yeah, They've got uh, essentially a lot to do and a short time to do it in. So it's going to be an exciting ride for the next 18 months, I think.
2: Yeah. And just finally, Tony Diver, to you, what should... Sunak do it seems that Starmer and Davey will carry on doing the same but Sunak's got some thinking of the weekend yeah i think so i think the
3: labour's labour's
2: key message which
3: is do you feel richer than you were 10 years ago? Do you feel that your life under conservative government has got better and more prosperous is a big problem for Ishii Sunak? And I think that's why the economy has to be his number one thing. Of course, he will be buoyed by whatever happens naturally in the economy, and he'll probably claim credit for that when he does. But I think there needs to be a clearer package from the conservative government. Maybe on... a vision
2: from, from Sunak? We haven't had it yet, have we? We had five, uh, five things he wants to do this year, but there's no actual credo. What is Sunakism, if it's anything? Well, yeah, and even during the
3: Conservative leadership election, what we had was basically a kind of scattergun selection of policies, some of which were a bit more left-wing, some of which were a bit more right-wing. Yeah, I mean, voters will be asking themselves the question, what does my Prime Minister really stand for the next election? And perhaps he could offer us some of that. Some ideas would be nice, perhaps.
2: Well, Tony Diver, our Sunday political editor, and, of course, Martin Baxter, an old friend of the podcast from Electoral Calculus. Thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's politics podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Thanks. Now what do you think these local elections mean for the next general election? Let me know. Email me, chopperspolitics at telegraph.co.uk or tweet me. You can find us at Choppers Podcast. Right, do stay with us, listeners. Coming up, we'll be talking about whether robots are really coming after your jobs as we get stuck into AI, artificial intelligence, with Matt Warman, MP, the former digital minister. Right after this...
1: For the first time in 70 years, the United Kingdom and indeed the world are preparing for the coronation of a British monarch. But what do we know about the role, function and character of our new king? It's clear to me that he absolutely understands the difference between being Prince of Wales and being king.
2: I don't think that any monarch has come to the throne so well prepared as this one.
3: When I had to meet with His Majesty and I heard him speak about what matters to him, I was profoundly moved and thought, I have to spend a chunk of my career helping that mission.
0: I think his secret ingredient is genuinely enjoying meeting everyone.
1: I'm Simon Heffer and this is Being the King, coming soon from The Telegraph.
2: And we're back! Now, away from the local elections, there's one subject that's got everyone talking this week. No, not the coronation. I am in fact talking about AI, after renowned computer scientist Jeffrey Hinton, known as the godfather of AI, quit Google in protest of what he had helped to create. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh great. Another discussion about robots taking over the world. But I fear not, my friends. We want to have an honest and informed discussion about the possible dangers of AI and how we can mitigate them. And Conservative MP Matthew Warman joined me at the Telegraph Towers to discuss just that. As a former technology journalist and former tech minister, Matt is uniquely positioned to give us some insight into the world of AI and its potential pitfalls. And folks, here's the kicker. This entire intro was actually written by AI. Even this bit That's right. The very thing we're talking about today is already infiltrating the media world. Well, not quite, listeners. I do think what we write is far better than computers. That was just an experiment for now. Anyway, Matthew Warman, welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. Great to have you on. Thank you for having me. Should we be worried about AI? So uh, the risk of giving you a very political answer, yes and no,
0: is, is, is the answer. <laughs> so there are potentially huge benefits to AI, whether that is augmenting existing jobs, whether that is genuinely replacing some jobs, just as previous industrial revolutions have replaced jobs. But it is also a risk to be managed. And if you think about the kind of hacks that we've seen already, supercharge those
2: with AI is one thing that a lot of people are legitimately yeah, first worried about. Off, I'm a journalist, if you write, you can sort of instruct the AI, the app to- to construct an idea and then you can edit it to make it better that's yeah. how it might help my job for yeah exactly and, and for instance if you were doing company
0: reports on profits for instance then it would be very easy for automating the process that takes some of the raw data and then lets human beings add the judgment
2: to it yes. uh, and, and add a load of stuff around it. i saw the comments this week from jeffrey hinton didn't you the so-called godfather of ai expressing concern that the growth of AI could lead to killer robots that are smarter than humans. Let's park killer robots just now, but but in terms of being smarter than us, that's alarming, isn't it? It is hugely. And and look, the challenge
0: with AI is that it's actually very hard to predict what it will do. This isn't something that you program in traditional coding style. This is almost something that you grow and then you see what comes out the other end. That's why you've got this sort of growth in what's called prompt engineering. Sort of, this is what you say to it and you find out what, what it will be able to do. That's why it's a subject for research as much as anything else. And one of the worries is if you do this research, but in the wild, so to speak, what happens if an AI probably of the sort that hasn't yet been developed but is very close goes out and joins a whole load of dots, connects a whole load of bits of information and then puts that to a purpose that a human being asked it to. So it's the unknown of it that is the challenge and that's why as I say it needs to be treated with caution. There was this letter signed by Elon Musk and others saying that all research should be paused for a period. I think if I'm honest they weren't really saying we think we can pause it but they were trying to highlight the risks of just going hell for leather in pursuit of commercial gain rather than understanding that this is as much science as it is technology, if I can put it like that.
2: Is AI already around us and being used and we don't know it?
0: Oh, absolutely. And it's already being used where? increasingly in the NHS, for instance, where it's able to make a difference on scheduling, where it's able to make a difference on some diagnosis already. So rotors, do you mean rotors? what's well, so, 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 so the, 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 the difficulty and... with a lot of this stuff is that we're on the cusp. So what some people would call AI, other people would say is simply old school automation. A lot of it is just sort of pattern recognition and sort of how, how can it help do existing tasks. So it's really the... The next generation that is potentially that which worries people. And that's what you've seen some really expert people, particularly who have actually been doing the work, not just investors, saying, hang on, we have to proceed with caution. Also saying, if we don't proceed at a reasonable, careful pace, we will lose huge benefits, potentially.
2: On productivity. Of, on, on
0: productivity, but also just on straightforward
2: human progress. So is, is inputting data, you remove the risk of a, of a, a human overlook a figure and not seeing the mistake. So, potentially, but then that's been the case
0: with computers and machines for quite some time. The other thing that's worth saying is that the UK is in a really good position on, on this stuff. Actually, we're, we're sort of by most measures, third in the world. We do a lot of the really sophisticated work at our great universities. So, so okay. there's, there's lots to be optimistic about. But what we do need is big, proper international cooperation
2: yes. to make sure that the standards are set. We'll come to the government's response in a second. How many civil servants could you abolish their jobs <laughs> by within?
0: So I don't think that I would see this as something that allows you to slim down the number of civil servants that we've got. I see it as something that makes them potentially massively more productive. And that's the challenge. It's about making sure that government adopts this sorts of technology, but also that we do it knowing that it's not going to be perfect. And government has to be wary of taking risks in a way that commercial organizations can have a different attitude.
2: There was a real threat, I think. I remember Jeremy Corbyn and his so-called robot tax, uh, (laughs) tax automation. I think that that came from the same space. Should unions, the left, be worried about AI? So AI is going to
0: revolutionise a huge number of jobs. And we know from reports, so for instance, there was a Royal Commission in the early 19th century on the then Industrial Revolution. And one of the things that, or a couple of things that it said, hold true absolutely today. And the first was invest in skills. They put it in slightly different terms, but it was absolutely invest in skills. The second was don't cling on, don't try and subsidise the jobs of yesterday in pursuit of sort of maintaining them. So they had people, for instance, as weaving was being revolutionised, they had people who were becoming absolutely destitute because they were hanging on for work that was never going to come. As soon as you start investing in new skills, even in the same industry, then you're able to see genuine growth. So the idea that you can tax
2: this... This progress into submission is just Luddite and deluded. So, is the answer regulation? If you look at, say, genetic engineering, might be a case in point where it's heavily regulated, isn't it?
0: Yes, exactly. And I think. AI is going to be a different challenge, largely because different countries will proceed at different paces. For instance, the AI that we think about in the West is broadly trained on the entire internet. It takes everything that's there and sort of tries to make sense of it. Well, tries to aggregate all of it and then it allows you to ask it questions and it can try and come up with some answers. In China, for instance, they're not training their large language models on the whole internet, because those are not the values that they want to expose to their citizens, and they're being much more cautious about how much they let it out into the wild. So different attitudes will be Prevalent in different parts of the world. What I think is important is twofold: one, to make sure that we have our values, if I can put it like that, at the heart of the global bodies that need That's to human set values those standards. Or Western values. Uh, well, or... I, so so I, I, I would I would say Western values, but ultimately these are machines. If you put it in, the, in those terms, that still need to obey the rule of law, and we have a huge number of laws that already cover the bad things that they might do. Onward, the think tank has just put out a really good report, I think, that is talking about how do we prepare for some of this stuff, how do we regulate it and also how do we manage the transition, which is really important because if you are going into a job that is disproportionately likely to be affected and we don't currently know, we don't have a list of every job that is going to be revolutionised, then government
2: needs to be aware of geographically where that is and where that is in the sort of list of skills that people need. Is that the work future. carrying on now? I mean I know you were the I'm going to call you digital minister from July 2019 to September 2022 I'm not sure you're doing it all the time but you were in the department, mm. the DCMS department looking at this space. Is work carrying on? Are officials aware of the risks? Oh, 100%.
0: And there is a... What's happening uh, behind the scenes? So so, so there's there's a white paper, for instance. When I was doing a a review on the future of work for Boris Johnson, then what he was very keen on doing was making sure that government was joined up. That you're making sure both that the health service understands the potential benefits and that it understands the potential risks. So government absolutely alive to this. But it is an international problem. Not a problem, opportunity. And it's an international opportunity. Exactly. And that setting of standards, yes. Britain could not do it alone, America could not do it alone it has to be a sort of, on one level, a global endeavour. a
2: czar an AI czar, you know how that
0: term <laughs> we, we, is used. I mean, I, Would I, you I, be it, Matthew? <laughs> I, I was the AI minister, we, we have an AI minister, I don't think they need someone looking over their shoulder, but, and I said I wouldn't have thought that when I was the minister, uh, <laughs> but, but I do think what government does need to do, and, and these are conversations that I've had with the cabinet office for instance, is understand that this is a cross-government challenge both in terms of national security and in terms of the opportunities joining those dots is
2: really important so in two words don't panic don't panic
0: if i could have three words i would say
2: proceed with caution matthew orman tory mp for boston and Skegness, on a busy day here in westminster ahead of the coronation thank you for joining us this week on choppers politics podcast thank you thank you well that's all for this week listeners I hope you've enjoyed Chopper's Politics podcast. Thank you to my guests this week, Martin Baxter from A Natural Calculus, our very own Tony Diver, and of course Matt Warman MP, the former Digital Minister. Thank you to my producers, Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. But most importantly of all, thank you to you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do leave us a rating and a five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find this podcast. And for daily insights into the world of Westminster, please do sign up to my daily Chopper's Politics newsletter. And don't forget to read my weekly Peter Rodari Costa column out every Friday at 7pm online and in Saturday's copy of the Daily Telegraph. And as always, please do buy a copy of the Telegraph if you can and where you can, and if you can afford it. Until next time, though, and happy coronation weekend. Enjoy the quiche. Cheerio! Cheerio!